On this episode of the London Lyceum, we talk with Dr. Glenn Butner about the Trinity. So we cover topics like, what is the Trinity? What do the ecumenical creeds require for the Christian to believe about the Trinity? What does scripture say about the Trinity? What are the eternal relations of origin? Can we affirm divine simplicity and the Trinity? And other questions like these. As always, if you have thoughts about the episode or ideas or requests for the show, hit us up on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or email us at contact at the LondonLyceum.com. Now for the only analytic, Baptist, and confessional podcast on the planet, we think this one's going to get you thinking. I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. I am one of your hosts, Jordan Stefaniak. And I'm your other host, Brandon Askew. And today we have the distinct pleasure of introducing you to our uh, new friend, Dr. Glenn Butner. He is a professor somewhere in the middle of nowhere, Kansas, I assume. I think everywhere in Kansas is in the middle of nowhere. Pretty I, much. I was born there, but I, I don't remember much anything about it. Uh, that said, we're going to be talking about the Trinity with him. So big, broad topic. Uh, I think we've got some interesting things to cover here. Uh, I think Dr. Butner has done a lot of work in this area and a lot of interesting and helpful work. So I, I'm really interested in talking with him about this. And, and it reminds me, we, you, you of all people were one of the top people that was recommended by my friend Corby Amos to talk about this topic. So he, he's a little Trinity nerd. He loves to <laughs> interact with people and, and he loves your work. So just good on you for that, I guess. Um, he's a good guy. So before we jump into all of it, why don't you introduce yourself to us? So, some of your, our listeners may not know who you are. So maybe a little context and may, maybe you just tell us what got you so interested in the Trinity. Sure. Um, well, thanks for having me on. Uh, it will be the highlight of my day. I've been bogged down in a lot of bureaucracy today, so talking <laughs> theology will be great. Um, so I, I am, as he said, Glenn Butner. I teach at Sterling College in Sterling, Kansas. Uh, we've got about 2,500 people in the town and about a fifth of that on campus when students are here. So very middle of nowhere, but I love it. Um, small classrooms, lots of good dialogue with students. Um, got a wife and two kids. So looking forward to getting home and wrestling with them tonight, which is what they always want to do when I get home. Um, That's awesome. I got interested in the Trinity. Um, I think from a very early stage in my faith, I realized that I didn't quite know what to do in a practical sense with the idea that father, son, and spirit are all God. I had a very clear sense of Jesus died for me and sort of a vague sense of the father is who I pray to. And I really didn't know what to do at all with the spirit. Um, but in terms of, worshiping at church on Sunday, I, I didn't really have much of a sense for why the Trinity mattered there. Um, and then add to that, uh, I have a really weird conversion story, actually. Um, read uh, some patristics in high school when a Western Civ teacher started talking about it. Um, and so I had a very uh, church history oriented uh, introduction to the faith. And that obviously has to be very mm -hmm. Trinitarian because that's what yeah. you know the early church debated more than anything else practically. So I think those two points led inevitably to where I am today, where it's now one of my research specializations and you know, I've written a little bit. Um, and so here we are now in this great podcast. That's, that's awesome. So, uh, well, uh, thanks for joining us again. And um, so, I guess just let's just start at a very basic level. You know, let's say somebody stops you on the street and they just say, "What is the Trinity?" Like, what, what few? Just give us a few sentences, like just very basic of how you would answer that question. What is the Trinity? Right. 
Um, in one sense, the most true answer and also kind of a cop-out is the Trinity is God. <laughs> so when we talk about the Trinity, you know, people that might be new to this podcast and haven't you know, heard a lot of your theology and philosophy, a very simple level, we're just saying it's the Christian concept of God. But then there's also the doctrine of the Trinity, which would be a, a sort of formal, uh, philosophically informed account of what it means for um, God to be Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Um, and at a very basic level, I think that would include the statement that God is one being, eternally existing as three uh, persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are equal in glory and power, um, and who are indivisibly part of the one uh, simple deity that is God. So let's um, maybe move into the the ecumenical creeds. Like, wh- First of all, tell our listeners, what are the ecumenical creeds? And then second of all, what did they require us to believe about the doctrine of the Trinity? The ecumenical creeds are statements that have come about from massive conflicts in church history. Essentially, when a disagreement about uh, the nature of God or of Christ reaches such a boiling point that it's moved beyond a local congregation or even a region, um, after the time that we have Christian emperors like Constantine, uh, who are able to help facilitate transportation, we have ecumenical councils where Christians from around the known world, or at least around the Roman Empire oftentimes, would come together to attempt to come up with answers to these questions. And a lot of times the creeds, though we hold them to be true, a lot of times they are um, incomplete, so we might say. So subsequent ecumenical creeds are necessary. So the first creed, Nicaea 325, begins to lay the groundwork for the doctrine of the Trinity, but it doesn't have some of the necessary distinctions between, say, person and being yet. That's resolved in 381, uh, First Council of Constantinople, um, and the process continues uh, throughout the centuries. So these ecumenical creeds, what do they require us to believe about the Trinity? Um, A very simple level that Father, Son, and Spirit are all fully divine. Um, The Niceno-Constantinopolitan Creed from 381 uses the term, um, which Nicaea also used, of homoousios, or of the same being, to describe the Father and the Son. For pragmatic reasons, a little bit, it kind of skirts the issue a bit with the Holy Spirit and would say the Spirit deserves to be worshipped, you know, along with the Father and the Son, which has a very similar implication. Um, The creeds, uh, especially this creed, are uh, laid out in terms of the narrative of salvation, so that the work of God in creating and in redeeming and in in the church are attributed to these three persons, respectively, as appropriations. Um, so all three, the theologians at uh, Constantinople, for example, would think are involved in each act, but we can see one or the other a little bit more clearly in each stage. Um, we also see clear language by 381 of the Son being begotten from the Father um, and of the Spirit proceeding from the Father. Of course, the West eventually modifies that creed by adding and the Son. Um, and, um, there's also a clear rejection of any subordination among these three persons. Um, and so I think those are the, the basic technical apparatus we see, at least from the the earliest creeds at Nicaea and, uh, Constantinople. Um, and there continue to be relevant things that develop in later councils, um, but Mm -hmm. largely there through dialogue with Christology that sort of secondhand spills over into the Trinity. Um, there's a bit of hesitation to do much 
expanding um, on the doctrine of the Trinity um, otherwise. So we got our, we got our basic definition and, and now some historical grounding with Nicaea and, and, and I think it would be helpful for a lot of our listeners who are maybe not familiar with this um, topic at all to go a little bit more in depth on what some of these words are that have already been used, um, you know, being or nature and, and essence, the words like that, or person, any other words that you think um, are, are fundamental to any conversation that we're going to have about the Trinity, maybe offer some definitions just so people can get uh, a bit of a, a lay of the land on exactly how we're using these words and what we mean and, and how, for instance, you know, when we use the word person when we're talking about the Trinity. We don't necessarily mean what we're talking about when we use a person when I say you're a person Great. and I'm a person. So just walk us through some of those terms. Great. Um, good question. I think for each of these terms that the way I approach it and the way I'd say a majority of theologians in the tradition approach it is rooted in a doctrine of analogy where it's really helpful to name um, anything that we say of an infinite God is going to have a different meaning than when that same word is applied to something in creation. So analogy would require us to, for each of those terms, say, here's what's similar and here's what's different um, when I use this of God compared to when I use this of created realities. And so I guess that would be the first concept that I think we would need to lay the groundwork for. And from there, we could then move through some of these definitions to look at the similarities and differences. So, um, for example, you look at the idea that there are three persons. So as you already noted, Brandon, that doesn't mean what we think today. A person is a distinct body with its own center of consciousness and its own identity and subjectivity and all of these sorts of things. Um, actually, uh, persona in Latin comes from the idea of a mask. That someone would speak through. Um, it's sort of a vague, undefined concept. Um, and the historical concept that I think did a little bit more legwork would actually be hypostasis, which is kind of folded into that of person as it was translated into Latin. Um, but this would be a discrete mode of existence, which is why people confuse person and tend to use the terminology today. So what does it mean to say God is three persons? That to be God is to exist in three irreducible ways as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then subsequent theology would talk about how do we distinguish these ways. So the first step here that we see at Nicaea would be talking about the generation of the Son and the procession of the Spirit. So two more technical terms. Um, so generation would be a term that we could use you know, in childbirth. I have played a role in generating two children. Um, but when we use that term of God, we don't mean, you know, there's some sort of reproductive act with a female deity that brings about a discrete heavenly body up in the clouds. Um, that's not what we mean. This is something that's immaterial. Um, it is something that happens without division in God. So we'll get to that in a minute. Um, it basically is a way of saying that everything that the father is, the son is, with the exception of being father. The father is the father. The son is the son. But both of them are the same will, the same glory, um, the same power, the same infinite life. Um, and that likeness distinguishes the son from creation. We were not generated. We were created ex nihilo, out of nothing. So I don't have those attributes of God. Um, so generation, if we don't understand it correctly, could lead us to say, well, there are two deities father and son and then you add in procession which is the technical term for the spirit being distinguished and you could say well there are three um 
So I think two terms safeguard us against that. And then maybe I'll pause on vocabulary for a bit and see if that's enough. I could get going on this for a while. Um, <laughs> but consubstantiality or homoousios is the idea that they are all one being or essence or substance. Um, they're all one thing. Um, that term in and of itself can be a bit confusing. Technically, Jordan and Brandon and I are all consubstantial in that we are all human things, um, but we are different examples of sort of an abstract um, essence that we instantiate. And that's not really what is generally thought to be meant um, when we're talking about God, though some more modern philosophical approaches are kind of bringing it back. Um, but the last term that's important is simplicity, which would suggest that, um, well, the last one I'll talk about, would suggest that uh, the divine being or essence is not divisible. So to say that the father begets the son is not to say that a part of the father's essence is given to a new thing that is the son, which is sort of what happens in human childbirth or in the generation of a tree from another tree. Um, there can be no division in the divine nature. And so there's only one thing that is God, but this thing is a threefold existence as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit who are related to one another and therefore distinct. And that raises a million other questions, which is why we're still here talking about the doctrine of the Trinity today. But I think those terms are a nice starting point. Yeah, that's that's helpful. And I'm just so curious. You know, you mentioned that there are, I guess, three discrete modes of existence and I would imagine most people, when they hear that, are like, what are you talking about? <laughs> Modes of existence. And then they're wondering, how does that really work out in an idea of a trinity? I mean, if it's like a mask and I have modes of existence, isn't that just kind of saying that I'm really just one thing? But then you're like, well, God is one thing. And it just raises lots of questions. So help me understand what is a mode of existence? <laughs> That's the million dollar question right there. <laughs> um, so a mode of existence would be a unique, um, relational, rational, and um, non-repeatable way of existing. Um, so that, that's maybe a good part of what it means to be a personal mode of existence. Uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit are all unique. Only the Son is begotten. Only the Spirit proceeds. Only the Father is unbegotten and does not proceed. Um, either of those. Um, they are relational. How do we know the difference between the different persons? Because of the unique way that they relate to one another. Um, they are non-repeatable. Um, there will never be two sons in the same sense that the son is a son. When we're adopted as sons and daughters through salvation, we're not in the same way. We don't share in the same being. Um, and then when we talk about persons, we usually mean something rational in the sense of these are ways that a thing that can will and think and act um, exist. So there could be different modes of being or modes of existence for um, non-rational being. Um, but that's not what we're talking about here. Oh, okay. So that, that, makes sense. that helps a little bit. But at the end of the day, I think we still ultimately have to say um, we don't know all that much concerning the metaphysics of what God is, but we know that we address three uniquely in prayer as Father, Son, and Spirit. 
Yeah. So I guess that's part of the challenge is, you know, it's almost like the that, more the more you say, like the the <laughs> the the bigger the chances you're gonna get yourself into trouble, you know. So you just want to say as little as possible and move on. Yeah. And I, I may we, we probably got this backwards. I'm asking you about the Bible after I asked you about the creeds, <laughs> but it, considering you know we're Protestants or whatever. But regardless whatever. of regardless of that, um what texts of scripture are primary in understanding God as tr- Trinity? I mean, you don't have to list them all. I mean, obviously there's stuff that's going to say that there's this, there's a father, there's a son, there's a Holy spirit. Um, but maybe certain texts that I thought of would be like Philippians one, two, which seems to say, you know, our God and father, the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It, it, it seems to attribute fatherhood. I mean, Godhood to only the father, he, God, the father, and then our Lord Jesus Christ. So what do we do with that? Because I've seen uh, there's a lot of different, I guess, I think it's a Trinitarian position, monarchy of the Father, where they're saying God is not the Trinity, God is the Father. And yet they're still affirming the Trinity in some way. Right. So maybe you can talk to, I guess, Scripture and then how we understand this idea that Godhood is uniquely related to the Father. Or maybe it's not. I don't know. Just what do we do with texts like sure. that? Excellent question. Um, I might start with the Philippians one, two, actually, um, given how you set it up. Um, I think, so the, the idea of the monarchy of the father can take a lot of different forms, but it's certainly the case that the vast majority of the uses of the word theos in the new Testament, the word God, um, are clearly referring to the father. There are a handful that appear to refer to the son, um, Mm -hmm. one or two of which are really beyond debating and a fair number of which um, the majority of scholars would probably concede refer to um, the Son. The Spirit has even fewer examples of this. Um, There's the example in Acts of Ananias and Sapphira uh, lying to God, and then a moment later that's explained as lying to the Holy Spirit, that it appears to call the Spirit God, Um, a handful of other possibilities. So if you're only looking at the usage of the, the term theos or God, then you might be tempted to conclude that there is only one God and the Son and Spirit or something different. Um, I think this pattern of scriptural language is one reason why there's been a tendency in the early church, and it's sort of resurged in some modern thinking, that we're going to call the Father God, and we're going to say the Son and the Spirit are fully divine, but we're not going to use that word of them. Um, I don't take that approach personally, even though I do tend to appropriate that word God to the Father, which means I do tend to use a word that could apply to any of the three, but generally my pattern of speech is to call the Father God, um, to think of him as creator, even though I can point to verses where the Son is called God and the Son is said to create. Yeah. Um, so when we look at Philippians 1-2, we do see a parallel between the language of God our Father and of the Lord Jesus Christ, which I think is interesting because that title Lord is one that in many contexts would be used to signify God as well. Um, it's not as surprising in Philippians 1-2 as it is in something like 1 Corinthians 8-6, where Paul writes, there is one God, the Father, all things are from him, we exist for him, and there is one Lord Jesus Christ, all things are through him, and we exist through him. And so he's kind of doing two things here in this statement. First, you look at Deuteronomy 6-4 in the Shema, one of the key statements of faith in Israel, which would say um, there's, you know, one God. um, And he seems to be incorporating Christ into that statement, uh, the Lord. 
Um, and second, there's a, a stoic understanding of God as the one from whom, through whom, and in whom all things exist. And he's splitting that stoic definition and attributing part of that to the Father and part of that to the Son. So it looks like Paul is incorporating in some sense the Son, Jesus, the Lord, into what it means to be God, the Father. Um, and that raises a lot of questions that, of course, don't even begin to get answered in a philosophical sense until these ecumenical councils. But I think that's one example of several patterns we see in the Bible that if you look at one individually, it might not lead you to the Trinity. But once you look at all of these themes, I think it gives us really strong warrant for the Trinity. And so um, I can point you to a couple of texts. Should I go into that or any follow-up questions first? No, you can go right into the text. That'd be great. Yeah. I always try not to go on too long of a monologue on a podcast. So. No, no, this is helpful. Um, there's several patterns of scripture that I think are important, and I would, I'll give you one example of each. Um, so we see things like Matthew 28, 19, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, yeah. So in everything from Athanasius and his orations against the Arians to, if you look at modern work of Larry Hurtado and Christological monotheism debates, there's been... A series of arguments that the way that the New Testament incorporates the Father, the Son, and the Spirit into what we might call cultic worship, the worship of, you know, an ecclesial gathering, a church gathering, signifies that these three are to be equally worshipped. Um, so we actually see that a little bit in the introductions and conclusions of Paul's letters, where he's giving benedictions in the name of the Father and the Son, or the Father and the Son and the Spirit. It wouldn't be appropriate for you to be blessed in the name of the Father and Glenn. That would be very inappropriate. But the fact that this is regularly a pattern to baptize into the name of Christ and the Father and to bless in the name of the Spirit and the Father suggests that they are somehow equally significant for worship, which Christians conclude means they must all be God because you should only worship God. Now, yeah. things are a bit messier in first century Judea, but in terms of the canon, you know, we don't really see people that admit worship if they're not divine. Um, so I could look at a wide series of texts that draw from worship. But another series of texts would look at the narrative of salvation. Um, a good example here being Galatians 4, 4 through 6, that when the time came to completion, God sent his son of a woman born under the law, sorry, sent his son born of a woman born under the law to redeem those under the law so we might receive adoption. And because we're sons, we've received the spirit that helps us cry, Abba, Father. So salvation in a nutshell, what is it? It's the father sending the son and then after the son's work is complete, sending the spirit. And so the entire structure of New Testament, what is salvation? It's these three identities. It's these three persons. But then we see places in the Bible where it says only God can save us or all have sinned. So if they're not God, how can they save us? So there's, there's worship, there's salvation. I mean, there are other divine acts. Um, one of my favorite is John 5, 17 and 5, 19, where uh, Jesus heals somebody on the Sabbath and he's critiqued. You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath. And he says, well, my father's working, so I'm working. And his audience, they say, well, it sounds like you're making yourself equal to God. But he doubles down and says, you know, there's nothing that God does that I don't also do and everything that he does, I'm doing. And then the next several chapters in John, Jesus is actually identifying himself with the Passover. You know, I'm actually what the Passover is about. I'm what the Feast of Booths is about. Um, I am the true manna from heaven. Everything that God did was about me. Um, and so it seems like they're all sharing one set of works. And then you have prosopological exegesis, which that's a fun word for you, uh, for the listeners. 
but it's a way of reading Old Testament passages as if they were heavenly conversations between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So an example here might be Hebrews 1, um, where it talks about, there's a speaker that says, God, your God has anointed you. And it's referring to the Son. So you've got God, who's the Father, who has anointed God, who's the Son. And this is being declared by a third speaker who knows about what's eternally happened. And many commentators think that's the Holy Spirit. So there are a lot of places where it appears that there's been an ongoing conversation between these three as they've decided how to bring about redemption history. Well, I don't really have any role personally in determining how God's going to save the world. So if these persons do, presumably they're on an equal status with him. Um, and so put these together, you've got a few isolated statements where Father, you know, where the Son and the Spirit, excuse me, are called God. That raises a question, are they? You know, is this a textual mistake or is this something bigger? And looking at those patterns of worship and salvation and divine action and divine discourse all suggests to me that no, the Trinity is a fundamental aspect of Scripture, even if Scripture doesn't explain to us the philosophy of how this works. Yeah. So you mentioned a couple of times, you know, a conversation ongoing, they, and yet at the beginning, I think we laid out this distinction of having divine simplicity. We're affirming this. Mm -hmm. How is it that there can be a real distinction between the persons and yet we still uphold divine simplicity? I realize we may not have <laughs> a complete answer to this, right. but just walk me through how, what are the, I guess, theological moves we would need to make to try to make this work. And you, just before you start, you briefly defined simplicity earlier, but there are going to be a number of our listeners who have absolutely no idea. I mean, when they think simple, they think, you know, the opposite of, you know, difficult or something. (laughs) So just make sure, maybe, maybe just define that for us again. um, And and then go into Jordan's question. I just want to make sure people aren't lost. Sure. Yeah. And if you want, when it comes to simplicity, we've also got listeners who are very, very aware of simplicity and they also realize well, I guess depending on who you talk to, there might be various versions of divine simplicity. So if you have one that, if the way you understand it is different then I guess what a lot of people would think, I think a lot of people, when they think divine simplicity, if they know it, they think everything that God has, God is, he's identical to all that he is. So if you think there's something more robust or less robust than right. that, maybe talk to right. that. Um, so that, that's already a bit of what the word simplicity means. Um when I teach it in a classroom, I usually um, start by showing students a couple of different pictures of things. Um, here's a um, mosaic of different tile pieces put together. Um, and I usually say, now, if I asked you, or if I, if I told you this mosaic has always been here, would you believe me? And they always say no. And I say, why? Well, somebody had to put these pieces together. A student will eventually figure out. Um, one aspect of the doctrine of simplicity is the idea God is not composed of anything because of the principle that something that is composed, that has different pieces that are put together, it needs an explanation. And God is our explanation. God does not need an explanation. So if you're going to have God be the ultimate reality, to have a seity, to exist of himself, then you need to say, in some sense, God does not have parts that he would depend upon. Um Now, you then can unpack this into a whole number of different dimensions. Material simplicity, I think, is the least contentious. God is not made of atoms and matter that are put together. Um, But I I tend toward a more robust version, something like Aquinas, who would say um, 
that there's not even a distinction between God's being and God's existence, where you could then say, well, why does God's being have existence? If these are separate things, they could not be together. Why are they together? We can't ask that because God necessarily is. To be God is to exist, is to be. Um, and of course, this, as you've raised the question, raises some massive uh, questions for how it is that there are then three distinct persons. Are these not you know, component parts in some way? Um, and I tend to punt there a little bit, which is a bit of a cop-out. Um, I, again, using the doctrine of analogy, if, if we think about what is simplicity doing in terms of doctrine here when it comes to the Trinity? I think it's doing several things besides that claim that we're protecting God from needing an explanation so that he's the ultimate reality. But when we look at eternal generation, we're saying several things. One, because God's essence can't be divided, there's no way for the son to only receive a part of that essence through generation. So my son receives a part of my DNA, but apart from my wife. And so he's partly like me and partly different. Um, but the son can't, receive a part of divinity. He's either fully God with the Father or he's not God at all. So simplicity safeguards that. Um, simplicity means that when the Son was generated and when the Spirit proceeded, they did not become second and third deities by dividing the essence because that can't be done. Um, in, instead, they were somehow internal processions. Is what's often said. They happen within the divine nature without dividing it. Um, but you'll notice what I've started to do as I've explained here is I've appealed to, you know, spatial metaphors that this is happening in God and not outside of God. And yet, in some sense, Christians have claimed if if the universe is all space and matter, God created that. God is somehow beyond space. And even there, my language fails because I'm using spatial terms to talk about this. Um, and when... I say that, you know, the son did not receive part of the divine nature as if he received part of the DNA. I'm appealing to a material metaphor there, but God is not matter. Um, so I think the doctrinal significance of simplicity is really clear and really important and is rooted in, in scripture in various ways. But then explaining how is that possible gets to be really difficult. So I've yeah. here used it sort of apophatically, sort of as a theology to, to deny certain things about the Trinity. But you get to that cataphatic explanation of here's what I actually mean by simplicity. And sometimes I like to punt and just pull what Gregory Palamas does and say, well, we don't understand this, but you admit that Christ was human and divine and yet one person. Why can't you admit that you know, God is three persons and one being? Um, it's beyond us. That won't satisfy some people. So I can <laughs> mention a few things. Um, one argument that has traditionally been made is the relational opposition. Um, all things are one in God, except where there by by there being a relation, there need to be two opposites. So for there to be a father, there must be a son. For there to be a son, there must be a father. To be father is to have a relation to something different. And to be son is to have a relation to something different. Um, so if God simply is father, son, and Holy Spirit, there must be a difference between father, son, father and son, or there is no God. But that difference must be the sort of difference that does not constitute a division. So it could be a, a modal distinction, or you could soften simplicity a bit and say it's a, a formal distinction, or it's a virtual distinction. All these fun philosophical mm -hmm. things that if I have to explain too much without books in front of me, I might botch <laughs> it a little bit. But um, I, th I think that's where people try and go cataphatically. So, yeah, no, that makes sense. So is it is it correct to say that, so rather than thinking of so the Father and the Son and the Spirit, they 
you know, participate in this divine essence, this God stuff or whatever to use terrible language. But, but rather than that being the case that the, the divine essence itself is Trinitarian, right? So, so it's not like the, the, the three persons are participating in this essence that is divine that we're saying, but, but that the, the essence itself is the Trinity. Does that make sense? Like, yeah. like it's not like, you know, there's God stuff that's like not Trinitarian mm-hmm. that, that each person of the Trinity are, are a part of. Does that make it sense? Does. So there's um an obscure council, I think of Soissons and uh, a guy named Gilbert of Portier had argued that the three persons were divine by participating in a divine essence by when they instantiated it, that they were there by God. But that was condemned because it seems to say that there are four that are God. There's this essence. And then there are the three that participate in this essence. And so the, the dogmatic declaration, at least officially of the Catholic church, but that much of the more confessional Protestant church has followed is that the persons are the essence. And that is one aspect of simplicity. um, Is that they're not. I think that's, that's helpful because I think a lot of people get, get tripped up into thinking that, that somehow the essence is his own thing, mm-hmm. like apart from the persons. But I don't know. But Jordan, you can go ahead. Uh, that, that's good. So this might go along with it. It's a, a little bit of a similar flavored question that I think a, a lot of people might have when they start thinking about the Trinity. Non-Christians might have it when they're talking to someone who believes in the Trinity. How is it possible for a Christian uh, to be a monotheist if they believe in the Trinity. And I, you may have very similar answer to that. That's fine. Mm-hmm. But it, maybe it's a different way you phrase it. Sure. Um, so I think how we're monotheists here could sort of correspond to those different aspects of Scripture, those different patterns. Um, we could say, maybe start with there being one operation or one act, um, one power. So everything that, this is the doctrine known as inseparable operations, everything that God does, all three persons do together. There's some technical distinctions there, things like, you know, what about when Jesus was incarnate? Well, yes, only the son died, only the son slept. That's a whole nother episode on Christology there. Um, (laughs) But when you come to most acts, the historical Christian claim is that everything is done from the father, through the son, to the spirit, so that they're all indivisibly, there is no divine action that does not incorporate all three but each act according to their own mode of existence, their own personal way of being. Um, and so creation, um, in the beginning, God created the heavens of the earth. Again, God tends to refer to Father there. All things were made through him, Colossians or John tells us about the Son. Uh, Genesis 1-2, the Spirit's right there, but the Spirit's often seen as sort of the perfecting cause of creation. There's an eschatological or end times emphasis on the Spirit uh, in the Bible. And so... The one act of God creating is an act of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, inseparably. So we say we are monotheists because there's all the divine acts are one, um, irreducibly involving Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Worship is also one, irreducibly involving Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we are, um, when we pray, we pray through the Spirit, or sorry, we pray in the power of the Spirit through the Son to the Father. So our Lord taught us to pray, you know, our Father who is in heaven. That's who we're addressing. Hebrews talks about Jesus being our mediator. 
um, at the right hand of the Father. And then Romans 8, for example, talks about the Spirit guiding us when we don't know what to pray. So this structure of worship is fundamentally Trinitarian. And we say that we can't worship the Father without the Son. We can't worship the Son without the Spirit. We can't worship the Spirit without the Father. So there is one reality that is God that it takes a necessarily threefold form. Um, salvation, we can say something similar. We're monotheists because um, what does it mean to be saved? It means to be somehow united with God. Um, the Spirit indwells us, Paul says. We are in Christ and Christ in us, Paul says. Um, in 1 Corinthians 15, we're waiting for when God will be all in all. Um, somehow to be a part of the life of one is to be a part of the life of all three. Um, we can appropriate this. It's the Spirit who joins us to union in the Son, who restores us through adoption to relationship with the Father. Um, so besides these philosophical claims that God is one simple being, we say that our prayer uh, and our worship, we say that the acts of God, and we say that salvation um, are fundamentally uh, union with God. They fundamentally reveal God. They fundamentally cause us to worship God. And yet that must necessarily have a threefold structure. Um, so we're not monotheists in the sense of like a Unitarian monotheism or a, a sense of monotheism in Islam or something, but we are monotheists and in insisting that there's one power, one way of worshiping and one that we worship and one being and so forth and so on. That's helpful. Uh, I know Jordan has a question he wants to ask about different models of the Trinity, but I, I do want to ask, so we'll, maybe we'll get to that before we run out of time, but I want to make sure I get this question in um, before we do run out of time. As, as a pastor, it, it matters a great deal to me um, how we are able to communicate these truths to our people in our churches. And I think um, the doctrine of the Trinity is something that we and you know, again, I'm just speaking for, let's just say the average Southern Baptist church, which is sure. you know, my context. The Trinity is something that we confess to be true. And that's about the end of it. Um, you know, sure. so how, do, how do we best teach the, the average lay church member um, these concepts that we've been talking about? Um, what, what do you think are some of the best, whether that be recommended resources uh, for them or just ways that we can teach these uh, in the life of the church? Great question. Um, I think it would be learning to speak about some of these scriptural dimensions I've talked about in Trinitarian ways. Um, so in worship, um, the early church had a Trinitarian liturgy long before it had a Trinitarian creed. Um, before they had the understanding of consubstantiality, everyone who entered the church was baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. Those three names were invoked at the Lord's Supper every Sunday uh, or every you know time they gathered. Um, Prayer was understood in a Trinitarian sense. So if you can learn to name and describe sort of the different ways in which we might encounter these people or different pa scriptural patterns of talking about Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who I just called these people, which is kind of funny, um, <laughs> then don't do that. Then, um, then uh, I think the congregation will sort of naturally ingest some understanding of the Trinity. If when you talk about salvation, you're able to speak of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the cross is huge. Without the cross, we are not saved. Um, but at the same time, what about the sending of the Holy Spirit? Is that not, in some sense, part of the good news too? Is Christ not announced as the one who will baptize in the Spirit? Um, now that's going to make some people a little uncomfortable because we have to be careful and talk about charismatic gifts and you know work through a whole lot of different you know theological doctrines. The Trinitarian structure of the Lord's Supper can make some people uncomfortable because 
you know, in, in a Southern Baptist context, maybe in some Protestant context, because that can have us heading towards certain Catholic ways of speaking about the Lord's Supper. Um, but I think we can develop distinctively Protestant ways of speaking about salvation and about worship that will help train the body to think in a Trinitarian way while remaining distinctively Protestant um, and not necessarily Roman Catholic or uh, um, Pentecostal there. But I think we have a lot to learn from brothers and sisters who are Roman Catholic and Pentecostal and who maybe have done a little bit better of a job developing that Trinitarian framework. That's interesting. Mm-hmm. That is helpful. Yeah. So I don't, I don't want to go on this question too long, but maybe you can give a, a quick thought to where social Trinitarianism fits um, within orthodoxy. Cause it seems mm-hmm. like there has been, at least from what I've seen, somewhat of a revival of like classical theism, uh, at, at least in the circles that I'm in. And they've kind of taken social Trinitarianism and said, this is unorthodox or it's heresy. And then I read people like William Hasker who are defending it and they are laboring to be identified with the ecumenical creeds and to be consistent with them. So I guess my question is, is social Trinitarianism truly unorthodox? And if that's the case, it seems like the people who are trying to make it work are just very confused or something. (laughs) (laughs) Um, The language of heresy and orthodoxy, I think, should be very carefully parsed. Mm -hmm. Um, So do we mean, is it heretical if it doesn't comport with certain uh, ecumenical creeds or confessions or catechisms? Um, in that case, I, I think, you know, the so-called Athanasian creed, for example, that probably doesn't actually trace to Athanasius, um, it would be hard to fit that with social Trinitarianism that would speak of, you know, several different centers of consciousness, maybe several different agents who are acting. So if that's what we mean, then yes, it's heresy. It violates that mm. um, standard of faith. Um, I know Hasker has tried to work to show that the Cappadocians were what he calls pro-social, Um, They weren't maybe fully social Trinitarianism, but they were laying that trajectory. I'm not fully convinced by his interpretation of uh, the Cappadocians. And so um, I would say it's going to be pretty hard to square that with pro-Nicene theology, even if the explicit statements of the Nicene Creed may not target that and rule it out. It it would be hard to really fit that there. Um, But if we're meaning, is it orthodox or heretical in the sense of, is it teaching that undermines the fundamentals of the gospel and of who God is? Um, I think there's a little bit more leeway there because of the fact that God is mystery. Um, where I would be concerned is when you then connect the doctrine of the Trinity with other doctrines. So if you say that each person of the Trinity has its own mind or its own will, its own consciousness, when it comes to the Trinity, that's not necessarily too problematic because to be frank i don't even really know what it means to have a divine consciousness yeah um but if you then map that onto christology for example um where we say that christ is the person of the son in two natures if you're associating mind and will and consciousness with person then it would seem that he doesn't have a human mind and will and consciousness because he's not a human person Hmm. and that starts spilling over into things like our theological account of the gospel And so I think there are some who can hold a social Trinitarianism inconsistently with like Chalcedonian Christology and classical understandings of the atonement. And I would just say that's problematic. You're heading in a a concerning direction, but I don't think I would use that term heretic yet um, in in this second sense. 
But if there are people who work out those implications and begin to thereby question classical Christology as well, I mean, there are some philosophers who've done that, and I'll try not to muck, you know, throw muck and <laughs> name them, but it's happened. At that point, I would say that is heresy because you're undermining our understanding of how salvation even works. It's heresy in both senses. It doesn't fit with the creeds and it doesn't fit with our basic understanding of the gospel. Mm. Um, that's good. So that's, that's, trying that's to really be helpful. generous there, but at the same time, planting a bit of a flag. <laughs> no, yeah, I hear you. I mean, I, I'm pretty sure Richard Swinburne in one of his really early works basically said there were three gods. He, he, he walked that back <laughs> later. <Yeah>. But <laughs> like, <laughs> that seems a little a bridge too far. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Before we close up, I know you've got a new book that you're writing on the Trinity coming out. So maybe you can just tell us, a little, give us like a short 30 second promo for what it is and why it's helpful to have another book on the Trinity uh, so that people can look forward to that, follow that, grab that when it comes out. Sure. Um, so it's called Trinitarian Dogmatics. That's the working title. Um, hopefully it'll be out uh, 2021 with Baker. And I'm hoping it's going to be... Uh, a document that'll both be helpful at a graduate level for students who are learning about the Trinity, but also just for general systematic theology for, you know, scholars and professionals. Um, why another book? Well, if you look at most introductions to the Trinity, um, they tend to be diachronic going through time. So there'll be a section on what does the New Testament and Old Testament say, a section on, you know, early church, middle ages, and then modern debates. And that's really helpful. But I'm not aware of many contemporary works that go doctrinal locus by doctrinal locus. So my book is actually going to start with consubstantiality, move to the processions from there, uh, look at simplicity and go through section by section, each chapter being able to look at Bible tradition and contemporary debates as best as I'm able. And so I think it'll give us a different way of learning about the Trinity and studying the Trinity, kind of geared toward the sorts of questions you're asking. How does simplicity fit with the Trinity? What does it mean to say that we're monotheists? I think that's a little bit more easily answered topically than it is historically, you know, looking at the historical development. So there's awesome. the book. Uh, don't have any discount codes to throw out yet, but <laughs> maybe one day. Uh, when it does come out, we will obviously promote it. Um, and, and maybe we'll have you back on or something to talk more about it. Could be fun. Um, if anyone is interested in keeping up with you, do you have a website or anything that they can, you know, bookmark and check out on new writings that you put out? Um, I don't really have a website. I've got academia.edu account so every once in a while I'll throw up something published there your best bet is probably Twitter um, so I think it's just at Glenn Butner I don't give it out much so it might be Glenn.Butner you'll have to Google and find out um, uh, if you search your name I'm yeah. sure it'll come up yeah so and I do post if I get stuff published I'll post it there usually okay cool yeah well that's awesome so we want to give you a huge thanks for coming on the show I think this is yeah, really helpful you. and interesting so thank you for that and for the listeners uh, for you guys who've been listening, I, I think you got, got a real treat with this episode, and I think you should definitely go buy his book when it comes out. Uh, I know I will. Anyway, you've been listening to the only analytic and Baptist confessional podcast on the planet, and we thank you for tuning in. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for three forty nine dollars a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today, or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.